0: clarify something that I said last week that pointed out to me that I don't know if I gave the a long expression to those of you that were here remember I was talking about the fact that one of the things we're trying to reach as far as a goal is to um, see Third John chapter, uh, Third John 4 or Third John 6, whichever one it is 4. It says um, my greatest desire is to have my children yeah. okay and so um, I was playing around over here, and I had three things listed, and I said, and then, you know, and, and do a sometime," and then said, you know, Third John 6, this is what we want to accomplish. <laughs> I, I did not mean to, to imply that there is a certain formula that if you do this, it's going to make <laughs> Third John <laughs> 6 happen. I think we did that. <laughs> Somehow I got that across to somebody. <laughs> Uh-oh. So, so what I was trying to say was, if, if your bottom line is 3 John 6, if that's what you're trying to do, then that should help us make decisions about the top sure. thing. Okay? Do I want to be involved in this, this, or are my children involved in this, or this? Is it going to lead to this happening down here? Does that make sense? That, that's all of by that. And the second thing I left out that I wanted to say was that, you know, I mentioned last week about playing softball. And, uh, I just thought later, you know, I should have recognized Roy Ryber over here, because when I was 14 years old, he sort of told me that I was finally old enough to play church soccer, <laughs> and he's always sort of been a little hero in my mind for that.
1: <laughs>
0: but he was a pretty good player too. He could probably still do it if he wanted to. <laughs> now, today, if we're going to talk about preparing the child for the road, and uh, when we were putting this class together last fall, I talked to Mike a little bit about this and uh, asked him to draw on some of his experiences that he's had at Lakeland Christian from being a teacher all the way up to now being headmaster about dealing with uh, parents and uh, what he has learned and observed um, in you know watching parents and, and with a track record that long, you can see how some decisions being made here, how they play out in the years that follow, see? That's what makes that um, very valuable. So he's going to talk about that kind of thing today. (coughs) Hopefully some of the things that he has learned will be uh, helpful to you in decisions that that you make or or, or would anticipate coming down the road. And then next week we're going to talk about... uh, Mate Selection, and Discerning God's Will for Marriage. What we're going to do next week, we're going to have a little bit of a panel. There's going to be uh, five or six couples that are sitting up here, and they're each going to a little opening statement about thing, their experience in, um, in their families about guiding their children on, on how and who they should marry and how that process went and uh, how it all turned out and that kind of thing. And so you might want to come and see if you can get some, uh, glean some uh, principles from that that would be helpful to you. So we've got some on the panel that don't have any children married yet uh, and have been working with the process to some like the Wazielewski's who just had somebody married and just had somebody engaged. So they are uh, right in the thick of it. So in, in all kind of things in between. So anyway, be aware of that let's pray and then Mike will get started for us father in heaven thank you that we can be in your house today we just commit this time to you now pray that you give Mike clarity of thought and help him to express the things that he wants to say and communicate give us all receptive and teachable hearts we pray in Jesus name amen
2: this is called if I knew this when I was raising mine I'd have done a lot better job
1: yeah. I taught a
2: class one time on principles for raising teenagers when my children were under five.
1: <laughs>
2: that shows you my discretionary level. Hopefully, I've learned a little something since then. When we did um, <coughs> the uh, class a couple of weeks ago on educating your child and I got to the end I had one little piece that I didn't finish. So that's above the dotted line on your handout there, um, what we didn't finish. and. <coughs> The, the best thing you can do um, for that uh, information related to praise and children is to go to that article, uh, New York Magazine article by Poe Bronson, who does a nice job of summarizing um, several pieces of research. Most intriguing to me is uh, Carol Dweck, who was at Columbia, who's now at Stanford, uh, working on the the uh, the whole notion of praise for children and what we compliment and praise and encourage in children can sometimes have the reverse effect of what we hope for. Um, and I think it's a, a known um, principle that you you get more of what you encourage. Or in the workplace they say you get more of what you reward. Um, but those things are those things are true, but what uh, Dweck's, uh research is showing up in a whole variety of places in the educational literature, and I just snagged about six little points out of that article from the New York Magazine. That was uh, working with her research and some other folks' uh, studies as well, and. So I'm just going to give you those quickly so we have, we have a lot of other things to do related to today's topic, but uh, praise hard work and effort, <clears throat> not intelligence or ability. And praise hard work and effort and not so much intelligence or ability. You're really good at math It's not as powerful a statement as, I noticed that you worked really hard on that and you seem to be doing really well. Uh, keep up the good work. <clears throat> and to, to think of the brain and to think of intelligence as a muscle that can be developed and strengthened rather than something that is a fixed entity that's just there, and when you run out of it, you're out of it. So when you hit your limit, you're done. And and the idea is to have children understand that the brain, to think of it as a muscle that can be strengthened rather than something that uh, whenever that's as good as you can do, that's all you can hope for. You're you're stuck. <clears throat> Number three, uh, higher self-esteem does not improve grades, does not improve career achievement. Um, there's there's a section in the article that you can read. Uh, Fifteen thousand studies were reviewed related to self-esteem and academic achievement, and of those, only two hundred were found to have sound statistical research method uh, applied in that research and after you take those 200 and you reduce them down with uh, a little second review of those works, uh, one of the leading honchos in the self-esteem movement had to admit that they really don't make a causal connection there. Um, So the whole self-esteem thing, can be summarized on the cartoon on the back from that great theologian, Gary Trudeau. Number four, praise needs to be specific in order to be effective. Good job. That's good. Well done. Doesn't really do much for you. Um, You did a nice job um, tying the uh you did a nice job keeping all of the uh keeping that paragraph to one topic you did a nice job on your topic sentences you did a really good job of uh being very clear about your terms when you wrote that you did all those specific things um, you know you got it you did a nice job of you know your dresser top looks so much more organized now and uh I really appreciate how you organize those uh, toys in the bins in your closet or whatever. Something specific, not good job cleaning your room. What's that do for you? I don't know. How do I do a good job again? I don't know, really. But if you give me something specific, it's something I can do something about. I know how to do it again. Students' praise for their ability tend to become more risk adverse. They don't try the harder stuff. Had a little deal in part of the work. They took uh, some gave these kids puzzles, and they told one group, um, "You did know, uh, you know, good job on those puzzles. Now we're gonna. You have the opportunity to do some puzzles that are about as hard as the ones you just did, or well, we have some that are a little tougher. Which one would you like to do? The ones praised for ability tended to take the lesser challenge. The one praised for hard work said, so, "Let me see if I can do that." They tend to gravitate to more. And then it talks about lack perceived autonomy. You know how that works when you uh, call on a child, what's 2 plus 2? And one of them might say, 4. And one of them might look at the teacher kind of with an inquiring and an interrogative inflection. 4? You know, they're not really sure. They don't, they're not, you know, what's the capital of Vermont? Montpelier? That's a great piece of knowledge. Won't change your life, but (laughs) it's true. But they don't, uh, they look at the teacher more to make sure they're okay. Am I doing right? You know, they're more risk adverse. Uh, by age 12, this is fascinating to me, and then we'll move on. By age 12, students began to associate uh, another student in their class receiving praise as somebody that must not be very good at what they're doing because they the teacher knows they need extra encouragement. So they're sophisticated enough to figure out that praise, if it's, if it's more than just kind of seems reasonable, well, that, that student must not be very bright because the teacher feels like they've really got to prop them up over there with a lot of extra praise. So just throwing praise at, at uh, kids has some interesting uh, interesting development. Now I don't want this to paralyze you. They don't ever tell your children you're doing something well. But it's an intriguing um, notion about the power of praise that sometimes it can have the inverse power that you think it does. I was intrigued. A uh, number of years ago, a book came out by Alfie Kohn, who's obviously Jewish, wrote a book called Punished by Rewards. <coughs> And his theory was if I wanted to do in Christianity, I would have little children memorize scripture verses for prizes. And he unpacked that in terms of mo- children motivation. It's kind of a haunting thought, isn't it? But we all did that and we survived. You know, we memorized 100 verses to get a week at Camp Gilead. I memorized 200 so I didn't have to go to Camp Gilead. <laughs> Nothing against I guess can it's just I went out there one time and was dreadfully homesick and it was a bad deal.
1: <laughs> All
2: right, preparing the child for the road, not the road for the child. We said last time, uh, talked about the burden that we have sometimes to make our children feel good or to make them feel like we're, we're taking, the, we're smoothing the road out for them so they don't have to deal with adversity. And somehow we, we have the mistaken notion that that's as parents, we want our children to have a smoother life with less bumps. And so we exhaust ourselves trying to smooth out all the bumps, and it's, a, it's an impossible task. Uh, we all know that in our heads, but somehow we lose that a little bit when we start dealing with our children. So here's some goals that we have as, as parents. Uh, we want our children to become thoroughly trained, devoted followers of Jesus Christ, equipped to pursue whatever is God call, God's call on their life. This ties into what we talked about last time about education want to be thoroughly trained that includes math and science as well as theology to be equipped to pursue whatever is God's call in their life. We want them to become independently dependent. That is, we want them to own their faith not just rent it. Okay? Own their faith, not just rent it. So it's really theirs. Um, and we want them to have a biblical working definition of what is the good life. Um the good life, in terms of uh, what is the desirable, what does the desirable life look like? Uh, yes. What things are important? What things are big? Which things are little? What um, you know is is the size of my house define my value, or does does uh, my daughter lived, and her family lived in Portland, Oregon, for um, almost two years, and she told me when we went to church with them, she said, "Here's a little piece of Portland culture for you." Don't ask somebody uh, what they do for a living or where they live. That's like asking college kids meeting each other not to ask what's your major. <laughs> what else do you ask? Where do you live? Which your... So there's people out here real hung up on that because they want they, they want people to not uh, identify them or label them by their neighborhood or their career just for them as being them. Now, Portland's a little bit strange. <laughs> My son-in-law called Oregon the, people, the People's Republic of Oregon. But it's a kind of a liberal community. My favorite bumper sticker was the one that said, I was born right the first time.
1: <laughs> you can think about that. Oh For
2: you born-again people. Figure out where that goes. But <clears throat> the idea was, you know, these labels of what you're like and who you are and all that kind of stuff. What our affections are uh, shape what we worship, what we teach our children to love. Um, you, some of you are... Um, among those of us that are involved with a cult known as SEC football. And your children grow up, uh, you know, rooting for some team because their parents do. There's no rational explanation for it other than than that. Uh, and then you have some wayward souls, you know, that grow up in, you know, Les has got one that, you know, grew up from the University of Georgia's offspring that pulls for Florida. It's just a, kind of an embarrassment to him. I hate to... I mean, so sometimes those <laughs>
1: things so
2: sometimes those things happen. But I mean, we just kind of but we want them to own it and not just rent it. They want it to be theirs and not just their parents, and want their loves to be cultivated that way. So what do children need to reach maturity: nurture, structure, and latitude. Nurture, structure, and latitude. So what's that about? Nurture, love, and acceptance, obviously. We want them to have that to be done with an understanding of the gospel. He's got Ephesians 6.4. Got a bunch of people out there with verses. Go ahead. Fire away. Father,
0: do not evaporate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of
2: the Lord. All right. Nurture and admonition of the Lord, King James would say. The training and instruction of the Lord. So they need to know
1: it,
2: and they need to know that they're not alone in figuring this out. One of the things that's intriguing is, particularly in the area of sexuality, teenagers, somehow, a lot of them have the idea that it's up to them to figure this out by themselves. They're alone in this journey. And the only place they know to turn for help is by other people who are alone in the journey the same age, which is a scary thing, blind leading the blind, or scarier they're not so blind leading the blind. But the... the, uh, the, f- the sense that I'm in it alone and I have to figure this out all by myself and that um, from other confused people my age and the nurture, love and acceptance and that they're not alone in dealing with some of the challenges they face. Structure, expectations and limits, Proverbs two six. Proverbs one eight. Hear my son
1: your father's instruction
0: and forsake not your mother's teaching.
2: <coughs> Proverbs four one.
0: Hear, O son, the father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. <coughs> Daniel two twenty eight. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, <coughs> and he has
2: made
1: known
2: There's a God in heaven, and listen to your parents, and here's some structure and limits, and they're there to protect you. Now, that includes the idea of the delay of gratification. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago with the marshmallow study, Um, delay of gratification being critical in developing a maturity. Um, the ability to delay and defer one's impulses for the long-term good. Um, Latitude. Latitude uh, supports the autonomy and the freedom to learn from experience. The the opportunity to learn from experience. Two weeks ago, I read you some uh, statements and observations from teachers. And one of the things, that a theme that repeatedly reoccurred was Students need to have uh, op opportunity to fail and to flop and flounder and to be able to um, find out that they can recover from that, that they're not in a, a, a failure is the worst. What's the deal from Apollo 13? Failure is not an option. Um, but In that case, it wasn't. But,
1: <laughs>
2: but that failure is an instructive experience. It can be and that we don't want to uh, prevent them from having an opportunity to flop on occasion and to be able to learn from that experience. So the, uh, the latitude piece, you are talking about support for autonomy, freedom to learn from their experiences. Uh, this would be a lot safer if I was about 500 miles from home because some of my examples might be known to someone but this is so good I'm going to roll the dice on this one I have no idea who this student was or who this family was that's my disclaimer (laughs) we're in a state soccer tournament we got uh, these two tour buses taking kids up to the state soccer tournament this year this is where if they're call and roll they got got 20 bucks a piece from all these kids where's this kid he's missing they find him in class why aren't you on the bus I can't go why not what's the I got in trouble last night my parents said I can't go okay You want your money back? No. My parents said I also cannot ask for a refund. And it's my twenty bucks. So well are you going tomorrow if you make the final? Same deal. <laughs> <laughs> it's his forty bucks. Bye bye. Okay. I thought that was a great piece of latitude. Support for our economy for economy, the freedom to learn from experience. It cost him forty bucks. I bet he learned a lot more than forty bucks worth. From that experience, I, I don't know who that was, but uh, I would have run around and high-fived them if I had the opportunity. That's easy to do for somebody else's kids because you know somebody else's kids aren't looking at you with the, you know. So, First um, Samuel seventeen
0: thirty-four. But David said to Saul, your servant. You when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock.
2: He killed him, right? Does it keep going? Did you talk about killing him or he already did?
0: And I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him.
2: All right. How many people think that David's all-time military record at that point in his life was 2-0 oh going into the Goliath battle? you think he whipped the lion the first time he saw one? I don't know. Of course, you know, it's a highlight reel when he's talking to Saul. He's not going to talk about the time the lion won. He's going to talk about the time he won. But <clears throat> the point was, so I was reading that recently, and I thought, you know, he didn't start with Goliath. <clears throat> he didn't start with Goliath. He started with lions and bears and sheep and stuff. Nobody was out there watching when he did the lion and bear thing. He was out there by himself. Nobody was there to help him. He had to do it by himself. And he did it by himself. So when he got in front of the crowd, in front of Goliath, he was ready for the big show because he would already had some smaller victories. So we need to let our kids deal with the Lions and the Bears if they're going to be ready for the Goliaths. And not always they won't always win against the Lions and the Bears. Most people win when they play the Lions. That's a different story. <laughs> but, but the, you know, there's, there's lead-ups to the biggie. Now the the little diagram on the bottom there, we give them uh, these boundaries and in here it's uh, freedom and safety. So you have certain boundaries that you give your children whatever age appropriate level you're dealing with um, and that may have to do with not playing in the street, Whatever, you know, whatever age it is. Um, And so you tell them, here's the box. That's the limits. Now, when they go out here, they violate the limits. Then uh, all bets are off. I call it the Mexican jail. Who knows what happens to you? You know, we had senior trip years ago. went to Mexico, and, and some guys were going to take something rather contraband on the plane, and they said, you think they're going to catch us with this? This is way before TSA or anything. Yeah, yeah. What do we do with it? I don't know, but put you in jail for that here. I don't know when you'll get out. Because <coughs> it, it's not like the United States. Nobody's reading you your rights or anything. You don't know what's going to happen. Who knows what happens? So when you go out here, you might get away with it. You might get... uh caught. You might be dealt with unjustly. You might be punished unfairly. You might be rewarded. You might be, your reputation might be messed up. You might be the topic of Facebook all over America. Who knows what happens out here? So the interesting thing is the kids want to control the opportunity to choose and also to control the consequences of that choice. We can't do both of those things. You can you have the freedom to make choices. You don't have the freedom to choose the consequences of your choices. So, um, you know, I was speeding to school the other day, breaking the speed limit so I would get to devotions on time and be a good testimony to my staff.
1: <laughs>
2: I didn't get caught. But now I know that, you know, another time might not be so <clears throat> providentially favored. Okay? So... Um, we don't know. Now, teens are poor risk assessors, those of you with teenagers. You know they're poor risk assessors. Um, you know that by talking to your car insurance agent.
1: You
2: know, I used to ask my seniors, why is my car insurance cheaper than yours? You know, and after they got by, you drive an old car. Okay, okay. <laughs> but so it's because people my age... I used to say this. People about 10 years younger than me have less accidents than, than people your age. That's why they <coughs> figure the tables the way they figure them. Why do you fight the Vietnam War with 19-year-old boys? Because they have a body of a man, but you can convince a 19-year-old he can do anything. By the time he's a 22-year-old sergeant, he's going, let's talk about this. <laughs> so, you know, the, the poor risk assessor thing figures into the mix there, too. But trying to help our children understand that the boundaries are there for safety. They're not there because your parents are some kind of control freak. We may be, but the reason that we drift that way sometimes is because we're trying to protect. They're providing safety. Some mindsets to try to build into our children in this process. A harvest mentality, uh, Galatians 6.9. He's got that.
0: And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap.
1: Reaping and sowing.
2: There's another verse that says, God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, that's what he reaps. Now we've all known people who basically, by their life choices, have mocked God. I know you say, Don't do this, but I'm doing it anyway, and I'm getting away with it, and life is sweet. And you say don't be deceived, God is not mocked, whatever man sows, he reaps. Now it doesn't say he reaps it right now, sooner or later it happens. So the harvest mentality of understanding um, that requires a that requires a long-range viewpoint. Um, probably the best thing I've read on that in the last five years is uh, Paul Tripp's book Forever the chapter on uh, Parenting and Forever. Somebody did a Sunday School class with that book. Is that Freddie? A year or so ago? If you haven't read that yet, you need to. Uh, it's a little book about this thick. Uh, big print, no pictures. but it's, it's a quick read, but the chapter on Parenting and Forever is profound. Um, but it takes a long-range view versus a short-range pain. Uh, be not weary in well-doing. It, the 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 weariness of being a parent you know because it's the same you're repeating yourself over and over yeah. and over Tripp calls it process parenting it's not an event it's a process and it's you know um, have you ever told your children I'm not going to tell you again <laughs> yeah you are <laughs> you can tell them as many times as you got to tell them to get the point across until they internalize what you're trying to teach them um, but, the harvest mentality to get them to connect cause and effect um, if you don't connect that um, what we sometimes see in in older uh teens is the idea that um the authority in their life took something away from them, and so it was you did this to me instead of because of my sin. I cost myself this. You see the difference with that. We'll talk about how words shape how we think here on the next page. But, but that's a that's a big difference. The, the connect between the cause and effect, the harvest thing. You do this, you get that. That's why we put this in place is because we want want you to do this because we know if you do this, one of the possibilities is something bad over here. We don't want to have happen to you. So, our protection is not that we try to bail you out when you get over here. As we try to be really clear about this part over here, <clears throat> treasure mentality. This goes back to the whole affections thing again. Uh, Matthew six thirty-three.
1: But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you.
2: I'd like to have a nickel for every time I heard my father say that. <clears> that wouldn't be seeking first the kingdom, but <laughs> I'd be a wealthy man. Matthew twenty-two twenty thirty-seven. And Luke 12, 34. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Alright, so our our, our treasure in our heart, it's a cyclical deal. So you have your treasure, and that uh, feeds the uh, affections of your heart, which drives you to invest more treasure, which feeds the affections of your heart. Which drives you to, you know, it, your 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 loves, your worship, and your uh, money follow your heart. So, um, one of the things that I've learned over the years in terms of trying to uh, encourage people with money to invest it in the mission of our school is that I have learned that uh, money follows passion. I used to think people made these strategic decisions analyzing their money, how much they wanted to give, how much, where they wanted to place it, and it's this cold, calculated, strategic investment of their resources to advance God's kingdom. What I've learned is that there are so many opportunities to invest our money to advance God's kingdom that what the great sorter of how we identify those priorities within ourselves is many times emotionally and passionately driven money follows we had somebody tell us one day my money follows my heart and right now my heart is where my grandchildren are and and so that you know if if we never invest in God's kingdom you know if i'm if i don't have a pattern of investing in God's church you know when we start talking about renovating the sanctuary I'm not going to feel any personal emotional connection or responsibility. Oh, that's nice. hope somebody does that. But your 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 treasure and your heart all feed on each other. So um, that's an interesting connection. Seek first the kingdom. Love God with all your heart. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. They, they just follow. We worship what we love. Our children will do the same thing. Um, and we need to love to cultivate a love for God. And one of the pieces of that puzzle is obviously the acknowledgment that God is there. There is a God in heaven, and that changes everything. Um, I told somebody the other day that this perspective on a, a big God or a domesticated, manageable God, you know, it, it does go back to uh, Mrs. Beaver's comment in the line of the witch in the wardrobe describing Aslan saying, he is, not, uh, he is good, but he is not tame. You know, he's not tame, and um, <clears throat> it's not. I thought I told a pretty cat, and it turned out to be Esquin. The big difference, you know, between Elmer Fudd and C.S. Lewis. Key tools, page two. <clears throat> There's recurring themes in here. The repetition is intentional. Decisions and consequences. Uh, support, but don't rescue. Now, obviously, that's uh, age-dependent, and, um, and you know, age-appropriate levels. Uh, support, but don't rescue. Um, <coughs> you're making cookies, you know, and they foul up on part of the ingredients and they may need to go ahead and bake those and taste how awful they are. You know. Oh, didn't follow the recipe. <clears throat> you know. Something could be very uh innocuous as opposed to something that would be more severe. So uh some of us are fixers. You gotta fix stuff. Now husbands How many times have we heard our wives start talking about a problem or a frustration or or something that was really um, irritating or upsetting or frustrating to them? And so how have we tried to respond to that? Tried to fix it. In the words of that great folk singer, when will we ever learn? Sometimes it isn't about fixing it, it's about listening to them talk about it. Um, but for people that are fixers, sometimes it 's really hard not to want to intervene and, and fix stuff. Um, I think that 's also challenging for mothers who want to, particularly if their child got their feelings hurt <coughs> about something, you want to fix it with something. Um, and all kind of things happen. Uh, we had a whole day at the beach happen because we were fixing a disappointment. You know, with our grandchildren, it turned out to be a great day, but it was, it was just kind of funny how that worked out. But it, and it, was, it was a great experience. But sometimes we we jump in and we fix um, support but don't rescue. Sometimes they need to feel the experience of so it didn't go like they'd hoped and <clears throat> helping them through that. Learn to ask the right questions. Um, I'm really trying to figure this out. Um, In the early um, the early part of my career in education and in my, most of my parenting and in a lot of the way I was uh, trained related to apologetics when I was in college seemed to focus on being able to give the right answers, <laughs> which seemed to allow the other guy to get to ask all the questions. Now, if the other guy gets to ask the questions, it's really hard. To carry the day in the discussion, um, it's kind of like um, if you got two guys in a race, and, you know, and you're going to race for five feet. I think I could beat Carl Lewis for five feet if I got to say go. <laughs> yeah.
1: right. In a younger day,
2: I would do this with my basketball players. It's a long story about defensive principles, but my the, My point was trying to say, if you get to say go, you're going to beat anybody for that much. You know usually, the difference between defensive execution and not is that much so <clears throat> the, if you get to ask the questions you're on the, automatically on the offensive so <clears throat> I think then the posture of always having to try to give the answer and not have the other guy process you know make him defend his position so I think one of the things we've seen over time is there's a lot of shift in that emphasis, but not just in the apologetics area, but, but having to help our children formulate the right questions. Okay, is this someone you should be hanging around? Give me the criteria of what you think a, a loyal, ideal friend would be. What do you think those qualities are? Is this someone you should date? What are you looking for? What are we looking for? What are the criteria for that? Um, I didn't do enough of that with my children just asking them what questions should you ask about <coughs> this or that or this relationship or this uh, friendship or this job or this uh, what 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 questions should we ask to get to the right conclusion? And I'd want to rush to just give them the conclusion from all my wisdom, and they would just lap it up since I was an educator. They would say, thank you, Father. You're an educator with many experience with many families. Why should I try to figure this out for myself? I will merely do with great compliance and cheerful spirit whatever you tell me.
1: (laughs) That never happened.
2: You know, I don't remember that. You know, I remember standing in the door, the exit door saying, "You're not going out wearing that,
1: <laughs>
2: blocking the door. I remember that part, so I remember the I didn't remember the thank you for keeping me within the boundary. I'm sure it'll happen someday. didn't happen perspective. see our children as sheep that need a shepherd, not an enemy to be conquered. I think sometimes we can shift into thinking that the power, skill, and manipulation we're going to outfox them. And that's how we're going to keep them righteous. And um, they need to be shepherded. They're not. They're not the enemy. We know who the enemy is. And you want to have a united front with your children. It's you and me against the adversary of our souls. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Though sometimes it comes packaged that way. But I mean, that's the real deal. I think the in in uh, coaching there's some magic. Uh, contests that happen a few times a year when the coach and the players are all on the same page and they're trying to beat the opponent. A lot of nights the coach is trying to compete with his players for who's going to call the shots and if they happen to work out to beat the other guy, then you know, God is gracious but you know some of those nights everybody's working together against the common opponent doesn't happen every night but when it does, it's a sweet thing that you're uh you know who the enemy is and it's not each other it's the real enemy. You know, and not that your basketball opponents are enemies, but you know that in the spiritual conflict sometimes you have to be reminded of that. And God's and Satan's intent is not to wound us, is to destroy us, to kill us, to annihilate us. Not just to give us a stub to stub our toes. You know, So the problems. Often the opportunities in the trouble. And the trouble gives us an opportunity to define the context for all of life. Hebrews 11.6. Who's got that? And without
0: faith it is impossible to him for whoever...
2: and then we already read Daniel 2.28 about Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and he starts out with the premise, there's a God in heaven. Um, there's a God in heaven. And um, God is. So we're living in the context of a holy God. So um, when a child is trying to determine, am I going to go out of here? Um... You can make that decision on a lot of uh, with, uh, with a lot of criteria for making that decision. One can be, what's the chances of me getting away with it? Uh, one can be, what's gonna, what's the worst thing that can happen? I say that too often. What's the worst thing that can happen? Um, so, um, it's been said that the only truly uh, American developed philosophy is pragmatism. So. Just strategically speaking, what's the cost-benefit to going out here? And and am I willing to run the risk? Life's full of choices. Am I willing to, you know. So if I don't factor in that there's a God in heaven, then all these the discussions look different. Once God's in the picture, then um, it changes everything. And, and part of what we do as parents, I think, is we keep bringing God into the picture. So, you know, what would God have us do? How does God define this situation? Um, recognizing, as Tripp says, that our biggest, uh, the, the biggest thing we have to overcome is what's within us, not outside us. The only reason the outside temptations have any power is because it resonates with the remaining sin that we're still dealing with in our own heart. Without that, there's no, connection to that out there, so the, the biggest danger we have to deal with is within ourselves. You talk to yourself more than you talk to anyone, and um, so what are we saying to ourselves? So we have to factor God into the equation, so when I'm trying to decide about these things, um, I need to make sure that I realize there's a God in heaven that changes everything because I could go out here and do something wrong and somebody else could do the same thing wrong and I get nailed and they don't. And then we say those three words,
1: fill in the blank. See?
2: That's not fair. And then as adults, we glibly say something profound like, life's not fair, you know. When you're on the bad end of that deal and somebody tells you that, I mean, what you, you just want to punch him out, don't you? I mean, I, I'm a pretty mild guy, but that, you know, I do not hear that. So, so the deal is, is you know, or you say, well, gee, I'll just lie about it and nobody'll know, and and I'll fool these people, and you know, I'll get out of something. And, but if, you know, that that makes it a little bit—that's a little bit plausible. If there's not a God in heaven, he will not be mocked. What you sow, you're going to reap. Changes all the perspective. So we continually, as we deal through the trouble um, we have an opportunity to teach the context of life, and we also have the the opportunity to build loyalty and connection. <clears throat> you shop some places because you know that you can take something back there without a hassle if you try to return something that you feel you have a justifiable reason to return and they give you a hard time, you don't go back there. The opportunity for that establishment to win your loyalty is in the trouble. If you go in, you pay what you expect to pay to get what you expect to get and the product delivers what you expect to get, life goes on, no big deal. When expectations aren't met, now it's an opportunity for that establishment to build your loyalty or to uh, send you to their competitor, <laughs> the opportunity is in the trouble. And that can be in retail sales, it can be in parenting, education, whatever it is. So um, opportunity is often in the trouble. Language shapes how we think. So here's contrast these two. I made a dumb decision. So if you made a dumb decision, what do you need? You need training and education, All right? If you did something dumb, you need to be educated so you'll be smart. Don't think about this too deeply because it'll break down, But because uh, sin, sin makes us do dumb things too. But if I made a moral or a sinful decision, then I need repentance. There's a lot of difference in admitting being stupid and being immoral for most people as much as they don't want to be thought of to be stupid they would rather say they're stupid than say they're sinful so in helping our children learn to grow in their capacity to repent we need to just not say yeah well what you did was pretty dumb but sin makes us do dumb things you know it makes us think we're smart when we're doing them but the real issue is not the the level of intelligence of your action the issue is the moral quality of your action and that leads you to repentance, and we have a Savior, we have an Advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One, and that's where we need to go with this, um, not just to give you better training. Um, so the language shapes how we think uh, sometimes, and we have the opportunity to to be more precise about that when we, with the way we uh talk about things with their children or with others. Here's some myths to avoid. These are just kind of a potpourri of uh, stuff that you hear that you go, I don't think so. Quality time makes up for lack of quantity time. Now, quantity time, mothers of young children long for less quantity time.
1: <laughs>
2: because what do you have? You have repetitive low-level cognitive tasks that, reco- that build a whole culture of nurture in relationship with the child. And yet you don't, there may not, it not, may not be the most intellectually stimulating thing that's been done all day, but, and you do it over and over and over again, but that creates that bond. Quality time is probably, usually happens in the middle of quantity time, and you can't schedule it. You're in the middle of doing something that's totally non-quality, and then, boom, this conversation happens that you had no idea was going to happen. But you can't schedule that conversation. So um, that's a a little bit of a myth there, Um, that you have to be willing to put up with all the... uh, My wife had a young woman that she spent... Uh, time with that uh, she did a lot of things that she would rather have not done made a lot of shopping trips with this young lady when the young lady had a lot more to spend than my wife had to spend and it was time and, time and time and time but then when she got that young lady got ready to, it was she was the spouse decision was upon her she was at our door saying help me with this decision you know I think I'm, I've been asked to marry this guy, and I've got to figure out how, how do I think through this. So sometimes you have a lot of quality, quantity time invested to get the opportunity for that quality time. The goal in our families is not efficiency; it's focus. That is very hard for me, uh, and I'm getting worse the older I get. The thought of wasting time, I start twitching. You know, if I'm not doing something productive all the time, you know, I just and I'm. I'm um, weak that way. But um, inefficiency right. is often the context of great opportunity. I must advocate to my child to make sure they're always treated fairly. i worry you out.
1: <laughs>
2: Keep them happy, that'll, that'll exhaust you. As my children get older, it's okay to leave them at home alone more. That <laughs> really sounds good until so you think about it. Um they just have more capacity to do more stuff. They get into trouble faster with bigger consequences. Um, you have to kind of work through that, but I think it's a I think it's a faulty assumption to just assume that. Um, I can be objective about my child. I don't need the input of other people. When I was a young teacher with no children and had all the answers, I said, Why well, can't parents be more objective about their children? That was stupid. <laughs> And uh, you know, I have parents tell me now, I'm just sorry, I'm not, I, I know, I'm just, uh, cause I'm the mother, and I know, i have got. I said, that's your job. If you were objective, I think you weren't doing it, right, doing it well. That's okay. Don't worry about it. I'll tell you a story. Um, <clears throat> uh, my dad, the last few years of his life was uh, had some significant health problems, and uh, <clears throat> was uh, sick on and off, and couldn't practice for a while, and then went back to work for a while, and then started having physical issues again, and we were we were taking turns spending the night with my mother out of the house, uh, and I was out there one night, and he was um, sleeping in another room because he was pretty restless and everything. And so um, he got up in the middle of the night, and Evan, from what I could tell, uh, he took a step or two and uh, fell and uh, hit his hit his head, and it was ugly. And so um, I got in there and. I was trying to talk to him, and he couldn't. He couldn't speak, and he couldn't move well on one side of his body, and he um, couldn't get up. And um, so we had to call the ambulance and everything, you know, which um, a series of situations that ultimately led to his death. Um, now, the context for that is. Uh, I'm there with him and I can't figure out what's wrong. Okay. Now, in my other life of a professional educator, I had taught first aid, the Red Cross first aid. I had taught this chapter on stroke probably 20 times. Mm. I graded people's papers when they said, the symptoms are slurred speech, can't control one side of your body, bam, bam, <laughs> bam, 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 okay? You know, give them all hundreds when they got them all right. But see, other people have strokes. My father wouldn't have a stroke. He's my father. He's always been strong. He's always been the man. He's not gonna have a stroke. So there he is. Can't get up. Started speech. You know. So <clears throat> I look back on that and I say, "You're dumb as a rock. Why didn't you pick that up?" I felt a little better because we took him out to the, you know, the clinic, and they just said he had the flu. And a week later, said, "You know, I think he had a stroke." Okay. So anyway, uh <clears throat> but. The, the point of that story is when they're your own, there's stuff you don't see because you don't think your own would do that or be that. See, And your mind is blocked by your emotional attachment to the person that you love. It doesn't process. It could be as obvious as a nose on your face, but you don't see it. So part of the deal in Christian community while all you that are raising your children together is you need to have some people in your life that you give the emotional permission to. I think you need to just say it formally to them. If you see me doing something stupid or if you see my child headed in the direction that you see as harmful, will you please tell me? And then by God's grace, please, Lord Jesus, help me listen to them and not bite their head off when they tell me that, <coughs> which is hard to do because we all tend to defend. Mama Bear tends to defend those cubs. You know, and somebody says your cub's a dingbat. You don't want to hear that because <laughs> they're my cub, okay? So you've got to give them permission to tell you that. I've got some people that work with me. I don't, there's not a lot of them because I happen to be the boss. But I have some people that work for me that I tell them, part of your job is to not let me do something stupid. And no matter how confident it looks like I am about this decision, if you don't think it's the right one, your job is to come tell me that. And they do. And it just doesn't feel good. But they're usually right. So somewhere you have to get around that wall of personal connection denial. Um, and I think about dad and the stroke thing and all that thing, kind of re- uh, about that because you just don't see it if somebody didn't help you. Used to be if mama's not happy, not nobody happy. Now it's the child's not happy, nobody happy. I think I'd rather take my chances with mama. Mama's got a little more maturity. I'm responsible for my child's happiness. That's uh, trying to smooth the road out for them all the time. That's not going to work. Um, the mother who does the most for her child is the best mother. Corollary, the homeroom mother who does the most for her child's class is the best mother. Um, those are part of the myths to avoid, too. So here's some practical stuff. Formative assessment. Uh, formative assessment is educational jargon for we try to figure out how we're doing along the way and not wait till the end. Okay, so I had uh, physical science, uh, CPS, one whatever, University of Florida. You had, uh, your grade was one-third on the midterm, two-thirds on the final. That was it. Two grades that were down on those two. That's not formative assessment. So you have ongoing conversations. So um, parentally, or with uh, someone else that knows your child well, you get together and you say, how are we doing? What are the things we identify we need to work on? Those are, um, I would... (coughs) I did that some. I would I would do that more if I had it to do over again. Um, find some people with kids <coughs> a little older than yours and ask them that you think seem to have pretty good handle on how things are going. Spend a little time with them, ask them the questions. How'd you handle this? How'd you handle that? Um, had a friend who's uh, with his children, their boy, his boys learn to drive, and he had to keep they all had to keep a log you know in that little zone between when you get your restricted license and when you get the real deal and in that period of time, they had to keep a log and they had to log so many hours of driving in the rain, so many hours of driving at night, so many hours on their state, so many hours you know, and they had to build they had to log all these hours in all these different settings before they could get their real deal driver's license, just part of the strategy of helping to be the responsible drivers and he knew his sons, I knew his sons too, that was a real good plan. Some of them probably should have their license when they were about 32 years old, but that works. Well, it's this formative assessment kind of thing. Um, Fatigue makes cowards of us all, Vince Lombardi said. Um, Parents and kids both probably need more sleep. Talked about that last time related to learning, and um, I think that's true. Um, It's remarkable the statistics on how many children have TVs or computers in their bedrooms. I've never, ever read any educator, psychologist, uh, anybody that ever thought that was a good idea. The percentage of children under 10 years of age that have computers or TVs in their room is a bizarre number. I don't remember. I read it this week and I said, I don't believe that, so I'm not going to repeat it. Incredibly high. Um, A lot of negative potentials there for sleep, for study, for uh, boundaries. Oh, well, you we find out with uh, kids that have cell phones, um, you can't have the cell phone in the bedroom with them when they go to bed at night. The best uh, thing I've heard is I have one father that I know, they have a, a charging station in their house, all the devices, and they have, they're have. they a very high-tech group. they got phones, iPads, you know, everything under the sun. There's one place they all get charged, and they all, are have, they all have to be there at 9 o'clock at night. And nobody takes your phone because your child's trying to get more sleep their friends have texting them at two in the morning you know or something and you're going what in the world and uh, and, and not to mention what they have access to on their smartphones that you would rather they didn't so um, that's that's uh, something that uh, they won't think they'll think I don't trust them exactly right <laughs> okay just tell them hey my phone's in the kitchen too Okay, I'm not asking anything of you. I'm not doing myself. So um, I think that's a big deal. Um, And I think that it is possible for people to survive and be perfectly normal human beings as children and not have cell phones. If you want to talk about being weird, if you want to go way up on the weird index, you know, set some age for your child to even have one of those things that's different from their peers, and they batten down the hatches for the resistance. But we all get those because we have this picture of our children going to be stranded somewhere out in the middle of no place, and the car broke down, they got a flat time, they need to be able to call me. And um, that's not what they use it for.
1: <laughs>
2: we all got them for that reason, and then look back and say, that wasn't very smart. Recognize only God can change the heart. It's not about out-scheming them, out-smarting them. Only God changes the heart. And to do that, he uses the means of grace. He uses the preached word, prayer, fellowship, worship, all that stuff. Um, I'm amazed with the fact that people will pay us what they pay us for tuition, for educating their child, and not go to church which is free. Not go with people who volunteer their own time, their love for children and their love for Jesus, to teach them the scriptures. And they don't take advantage of that. Uh, of mine. And last but not least, two, la- two last ones. When I cry out to God to do something, with my child's mark, he usually sparks with me. Sorry. I go, didn't you hear me, Lord? I'm talking about changing him. And the last one is just real practical. For teenagers, they have to get home, hug them, smell them, pray with them.
1: <laughs>
2: and we were that parent that said, yes, you can go there tonight, but we'll pick you up at midnight. Everybody else is spend the night. I know. We'll pick you up at midnight. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. And we um, we think of the dumb things that we have done over the years as trying to raise our children and hope we can learn from them and share with others to help save them some pain. And we pray that you would help us in this uh, overwhelming task of passing on the faith to the next generation. And Sometimes they're so bent on not receiving it, and we're so eager to give it to them. And help us to navigate that well that we would know the balance of uh, letting them experience consequences and failures and supporting them and and being judicious about how we navigate that. And we just pray for your wisdom and help for each of these uh, folks here as parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and someday parents that you would help us all to grow in our understanding of how you'd have us to do this most important task. (laughs) And pray that you would uh, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth uh, as we go to the worship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.